At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Amen, amen. It is a joy to worship with you guys, singing together, celebrating God's goodness and grace, and um, also as well to continue to worship Him, opening His Word and hearing from the Scriptures. Um, So as we have been over the last few weeks, we're continuing in the book of Ecclesiastes, If you're following along in your Bible, if you open it about halfway through, you'll probably hit the Psalms, and then right after the Psalms is Proverbs, and then right after Proverbs is the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're in chapter 2, looking at verses 12 through 17. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. You guys uh, remember that best we can tell, this was written by Solomon. He doesn't identify himself by name, but he does refer to himself as a son of David. He does call himself a king over Israel, and uh, it's certainly written in the flair of King Solomon. It's, It's wisdom literature and seems to reflect a lot of the biography of Solomon. So that's our best guess as to who wrote this. And oftentimes I will refer to the writer as Solomon, even though we don't have 100% assurance. To give you guys a sense of where we are specifically in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 12 through 17, um, see some of the context. If we see the context, we help us see the specifics. So I've got a slide for us to kind of review where we've been over the last few weeks leading up to where we're at today. So the thesis for this book is found, I believe it's verses 2 and 3. Um, Solomon says, vanity of vanities, All is vanity, and there is no gain to be found under the sun. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. That's kind of the thesis statement of the entire book. And then he begins to unfold seemingly evidence for the vanity of life under the sun. And so the first piece we looked at was verses 4 through 11, this sort of poetic reflection on the repetitive nature of the natural world and that how, that how that seems to reflect the repetitive nature of life, the redundancy of life. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing that we can do that hasn't already been done. And the natural world reflects that and the vanity of life. And then chapter, 12, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, he talks about the endless quest for answers and the strategy of overcoming the vanity of the world through seeking wisdom. And then last week, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, he talks about trying to overcome the vanity of life through the endless quest for pleasure, kind of paralleling those two things. And then he's going to continue that today, as you see there in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, reflecting on the vanity of life and evidence for the vanity of life. So let's read these verses and then we'll dive in. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. 
Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, the wise and the foolish. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool happens to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hugh Hefner and Billy Graham. Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa. Jeff Bezos and the homeless guy you saw on the street as you drove through town this week. These sets of people came to my mind as I thought about this question. Who are the two most different people you could possibly think of? Who are the two most different people you can possibly think of? So Hugh Hefner built an industrial empire on objectifying women, capitalizing on the broken desires of lust, and maximizing people's physical sensuality regardless of the consequences. Billy Graham started a gospel movement leading evangelistic crusades and seeing countless people trusting Christ, starting numerous organizations from Christian publishing like Christianity Today to Mercy Ministries like Samaritan Purse, Hugh Hefner, and Billy Graham. These are two very different people. Adolf Hitler built a totalitarian empire through mass murder, unjust hatred, and the insatiable lust for power. Mother Teresa gave her life caring for the poorest of the poor, showing compassion to deeply broken and mistreated people, loving the untouchables of Calcutta, India. Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa, these are two very different people. Jeff Bezos built an online retail empire, acquiring a net worth most recently reported of $193 billion, apparently enough to fly himself and a few friends to outer space, which has recently been reported that he's going to do. And the homeless man you saw on the street as you drove through town this week, probably no money, maybe some crumpled up bills, loose change, and he, along with the rest of us, are not going to outer space anytime soon. 
Bezos and the homeless man. Two very different people. And yet, despite the unthinkably vast difference between the lives of these different people, the end of their lives are the exact same. They die. In life, their morals were different. In life, their actions were different. In life, their wealth was different. But the end of their lives are the exact same. They die. Death is the great equalizer between good and bad, right and wrong, rich and poor. Different in life, but identical in death. And what Solomon is going to say in our passage today is that this too points to the vanity of life. The shared fate of both the wise and the foolish points to the vanity of life. His reasoning is, if we all end our lives the same in death, then what does it matter how we live our lives leading up to death? Because we're just going to die. As one commentator put it, for Solomon, lack of control over the legacy of his life casts a threatening shadow over pleasure in the process. He realizes, I cannot control the legacy of my life. I am going to die and be forgotten just like everybody else. I cannot control the legacy of my life. And so what does it matter how I live my life? It doesn't. It's all vanity. Whether I live by wisdom or folly, it ultimately, ultimately doesn't matter. The shared fate of both the wise and the foolish points to the vanity of life. So let's look closer at how he lays this out in verses 11, sorry, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2 that we looked at last week. Solomon shares that he indulged in every possible pleasure under the sun. In verse 10, he said, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So you remember verse 2, he said that he indulged in jokes and laughter. Chapter 2, verse 3, he says he cheered his heart with alcohol and drink. Chapter 2, verse 4, he said he built and enjoyed great works of art and architecture. Verses 5 through 6, he said he relished in the beauty of nature, gardens and trees. Verses 7 through 8, he said he luxuriated in massive amounts of money and possessions. Middle of verse 8, he says he entertained himself with awesome music. End of verse 8, he delighted himself in physical sexual intimacy. Verse 9, he experienced fame and the joy of being affirmed by others. And finally, verse 11, he mentioned that he took pleasure in his work, in the work of his hands. So every possible pleasure, he says he indulged in it. Though it may have included him making foolish decisions like blowing a lot of money or cheating on his wife or drinking too much, it didn't matter. He said he withheld no pleasure from his heart. Whatever he desired, he went, went for it. If it feels good, do it, was the principle that he lived by. 
And what conclusion did he draw after living so foolishly? He says from the outset in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. And he says it in verse 11 as well. He says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All that foolishly gained pleasure ultimately amounts to nothing, he says. His heart is still broken, the world is still broken, and the pleasure is never enough. You always need more. It never lasts. It's like holding on to water or grasping at the wind. It's vanity. So, starting in verse 12, Solomon is going to start to reconsider things. He takes a step back from this pleasure cruise that he's been on, and he's going to rethink things. He says in verse 12, So, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. He says, I'm going to once more reflect on these things. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. In other words, he's holding himself up here as sort of an ideal. If the king, with all of his wealth and power and access, if the king can't find fulfillment and satisfaction and gain through pleasure, then no one can. And if the king, with all of his natural wit and intellectual gifts, can't find fulfillment and satisfaction and gain through wisdom, then no one can. What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. So I'm going to reconsider these things once more. I'm going to think these things out and get to the bottom of this so that we can all learn from him. So in verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom... Than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So he's considering these things and he starts to think there's more gain in wisdom. There's more gain in living wisely than in living in the sensual escapade that he's been on. Self control is better than being impulsive, sobriety is better than drunkenness, moderation is better than indulgence. He says living wisely is better than foolishness in the same way that walking around in a room with the lights on is better than walking around in, a, in the dark. Generally speaking, you can navigate life better according to wisdom. And he reiterates this in verse 14. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. So he seems to be quoting a proverb here. That living according to folly, living according to the if-it-feels-good-do-it principle, is like walking around with your eyes plucked out. Whereas the person who's wise has his eyes in his head. Generally speaking, the wise person can walk his way through life, avoiding a lot of the pitfalls that the pleasure-seeking fool steps into. So, for example, Billy Graham avoided a lot of the diseases that Hugh Hefner exposed himself to living as promiscuously as he did. And Mother Teresa avoided the violent retaliation of enemies 
because she didn't make a lot of enemies like Adolf Hitler did. Hitler's enemies made him pay with his life. Mother Teresa lived peaceably, and so she lived in peace with others because the wise person has his eyes in his head. The fool, lusting after sex or lusting after power, walks in darkness. So generally speaking, there's more to be gained from living wisely. And yet, verse 14, Solomon says, I perceived that the same event happens to all of them, both the wise and the foolish. Verse 15, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Solomon says the wise man walks in light. The foolish man walks in darkness, but they both ultimately walk to the grave. They take two different paths to get there, but they've got the same destination, death. Jeff Bezos and the homeless guy you saw this week, Bezos is trying to go to space. The homeless guy ain't going anywhere, but they are both ultimately going to die. It doesn't matter if Bezos was worth $193 trillion. He could never pay enough to redeem his life from death. He's lived wisely. He's made great deals. He's got sharp business acumen. He's raked in cash. He's raked in our cash. But death cares as much about his money as it does the homeless guy's crumpled up cash and cup full of change. In other words, death doesn't care at all. It's going to swallow up Bezos just like it's going to swallow up you and me, broke or rich as we may be, wise or foolish as we may be, moral or immoral as we may be. Death doesn't care. Different in life, identical in death. And this too points to the vanity of life. And so he concludes in verse 17, I hated life. What is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whether you're wise or foolish, it's ultimately all in vain because ultimately we all die and share the same mortal fate, wise and foolish alike. And he says this makes him hate life. He says all of this is grievous to me. Solomon is exhausted by the vain nature of life. He's disturbed by our shared sentence of death. So he says, I hated this. I hate life. Because he's grappling with the question, how can we escape our shared sentence of death? How can we make our lives count under the sun? If death ultimately swallows up every achievement, if death ultimately swallows up every pleasure, every possession, how can we escape this? And he's exhausted and disturbed because left to himself, he is answerless, just like you and me. But gratefully, 
Solomon nor us are alone in having this experience of loathing death and the vanity of life. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, Jesus experiences the death of a loved one. It was a friend of his named Lazarus. And when Lazarus died, Jesus was a few days of travel worth away. He was a good distance away. But as soon as Jesus got news that Lazarus was on his deathbed, he starts to make his way to Bethany where Lazarus lived, the name of the city. And by the time Jesus reaches the town where Lazarus was, John tells us that Lazarus had been dead for four days. Chapter 11 Verse 17 of the Gospel of John. He'd been dead four days. And eventually, after making it to the town, Jesus heads toward Lazarus' tomb. And as he's approaching Lazarus' tomb, one of Lazarus' sisters, Mary, runs up to Jesus. And that's where we'll pick up the story. John chapter 11, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and she saw Jesus, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and when Jesus saw the Jews who had come with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. Ah, so you see Jesus' reaction as he approaches the death chamber of his friend. As he witnesses the pain in Mary's heart, John says Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The same Greek word is often translated anger. That's the kind of emotion he was feeling, this mixture of frustration and sadness. He was deeply moved and greatly troubled. He hates what's happened. He hates death. So verse 34, Jesus asks, where have you laid Lazarus? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then chapter 11, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. The shortest, but perhaps one of the most profound verses of the Bible. Jesus weeps. The sting of death, the loss of death breaks Jesus' heart. He hates it. But you know how the story goes. Jesus approaches the grave. He asks that the stone covering the tomb be removed. And then simply by the command of his voice, he calls his friend to life. Lazarus, come out. And then to the shock of those looking on, Lazarus gets up from his deathbed and walks out of that grave, still wrapped in the burial shroud. So here's the good news. Jesus, not only like Solomon, despairs of life. Jesus, not only like Solomon, hates death. Jesus is also the answer to how we escape death. As Jesus said earlier in the chapter to another one of Lazarus' sisters, Martha, chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection 
and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So this is the bold, radical claim of the gospel. Jesus is life. In Jesus is true, lasting gain. In Jesus, death is overcome. In Jesus, our lives aren't simply lived under the sun. No, they are lived under heaven. We live with an eternal purpose. Our lives count because our lives last beyond the grave in Jesus. So where have you been looking for help to solve your death problem? Have you walked the path of the fool, seeking to get as much pleasure as humanly possible to work through this problem of death through sex, through drink, through money, through work, through accomplishment? Solomon says, I've been there. It's vain. The money is never enough. The drink leaves you hungover. The sex never ultimately satisfied. Have you walked the path of the fool trying to grasp something eternal? Or maybe you've walked the path of wisdom trying to do the same. Doing things the right way, living by the book, keeping things in order, upholding good morals, playing it conservative. Solomon says, same thing. You're going to die just like your foolish, adulterous, drunk, greedy, godless neighbor. Hugh Hefner and Billy Graham, dead. Adolf Hitler and Mother Teresa, dead. It's all in vain, folly and wisdom. So where have you been looking to find true gain, to find something that lasts, something to solve your death problem? Solomon says, it's all in vain. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So I urge you, trust in Jesus. In Jesus, we grasp something eternal. In Jesus, we escape the earthly trap of life under the sun because through him, we're connected to heaven. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Jesus not only hated death, he overcame death. His voice has power over the grave. His own body rose from the grave. And now through faith in him, through trusting in him, through giving our lives to him, we can be united with him in his resurrection. And we can despair the vanity of life no more. Every other answer, every other solution, whether foolish or wise, it's all vanity. But in Jesus, there is life. There is gain. Let's trust in him. May it be so in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father in heaven, once more we've humbled ourselves before your word to hear from you, to listen to you. And we thank you, God, for the light of your truth. 
that exposes our vain efforts to try to fight death and try to find life apart from Jesus. God, so many of us have walked the path of the fool, trying to find life in money, drugs, physical intimacy. Forgive us, God, and open our eyes to the truth that true pleasure, true joy is only found in Jesus and in relationship with you. And God, for so many of us, we've tried to find life and overcome the grave through being the wise one, the good boy, the conservative man, the moral man, doing things the right way. But God, that too is vain. And so, Father, we pray you would confront us, continue to expose our broken strategies to find life apart from Jesus. And God, lead us on the path of life. Lead us to him who calls us out of the grave. Lead us to him who overcame the grave. Lead us to him whose arms are open wide to us to be received into your family, to be received into your kingdom. Father, may we come before Jesus just like Mary, falling at his feet, begging for mercy, begging for answers. And would you, by the power of the Spirit, speak to our hearts. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. God, fill us with that truth from Jesus. We'll glorify you. We'll praise you in his name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.